0: good to be with you. If I have not already introduced myself, my name is Trevor. I'm the lead pastor here at Risen. And if you have a Bible this morning, would you open up kindly to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. As a church, we are walking verse by verse through the book of First Timothy, and I am thankful that uh, for um, Mark Sim who preached a sermon, and for Austin who preached a sermon, and last year, uh, last 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 week we had Pastor Jeff uh, from Generations who p- preached a sermon, and here I am this morning, excited to be in First Timothy chapter two with you together. If you're new or you're just joining for the first time, welcome. We do hope that you would encounter God here, um, and we hope that you'd meet some good and new friends along the way. Um, When the Apostle Paul preached a sermon in Ephesus, he started a riot because much of the culture in Ephesus was not thrilled with the good news of Jesus, They lost money because of it. They had been manufacturing idols to other gods, and now this Jesus meant that that they were going to lose money, and they had to now rethink how they understood the world. So a riot broke out. In that city of Ephesus is a young man named Timothy, and he receives a letter from Paul into this community, where Timothy is, is is trying to help build the church in that city. And this book, which we are in, 1 Timothy, is about ensuring that the church of God is built on the word of God. I, I Uh, Let me repeat that because it's just so important. That the church of God is built on the word of God. So this book, 1 Timothy, is kind of like a church handbook. Too often, people are tempted to try to build the church based on the newest trends or the newest models or the newest research or pragmatism. Or maybe we have our own ideas about what church should look like based on our own personal preferences. Paul writes to Timothy to say, here's how to build the church. And these gospel-rooted instructions are designed to help us grow in Christ and go into our world sharing the gospel with the city that needs it. Now, I normally take the month of July off. If you've been around for a while, you know Trevor kind of disappears in July. We go off to family camp. We take some vacation. I work on some other projects. But I'm here this morning to deal with the most difficult passage of this book. And if all goes according to plan, there will not be riots. (laughs) But you never really know, do you? Are men and women interchangeable? Are are women just kind of different kinds of men? Or are women something different than men? The the Bible says that men and women are not interchangeable, but but rather they are made and designed by God to be in relationship with one another. So, So the Bible teaches that you can't just decide that you want to be a man if you're a woman, and you can't decide to be a woman if you are a man. This decision has already been made for you and gifted to you by the God who made you. Radically, the Bible teaches that men and women are both equally made in the image of God, equal in value, in worth, in dignity. But men and women have different dispositions, different struggles, different strengths, and are given different roles. Leonard Sachs, in his book, Why Gender Matters, writes that girls are able to see better than boys. They hear better than boys. They smell better than boys. (laughs) And they actually, like, they don't don't just smell, they smell better than boys. (laughs) Boys, on the other hand, are hardwired to be more aggressive, to take more risks, and to be drawn to more violent stories. Men and women are different, and this difference should be celebrated. It should be spoken of in the church and in the home. And as Timothy is building and helping to build this church, and as we are helping to build our church with God's help, we we come to a text that asks us questions about what are men supposed to focus on? What does God want women to focus on? And how do we order our church as a family in a way that honors and glorifies God? Now, for many people, they are afraid of these questions. We shouldn't be. Because we believe that God's word builds God's church and that God's word is good and that God's design is good. And so we want to live into that with great faith. And at the same time, we recognize that we do so in a culture that may come to different conclusions than we do about what is good. If you've been a part of our church for a while, you recognize that when we teach through a book of the Bible, we teach through the whole book of the Bible. So we don't have the privilege of avoiding difficult texts. Instead, we work not around those texts, but through them, believing that God will make us better in the process. So who gets to decide what is good? Well, we believe God does. And our goal is to see the world as it should be and to live into that reality with great faith. So with those remarks at the outset, let us together read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And I promise you when we're done, you will understand this text more profoundly. 1 Timothy 2 8 through 15, Paul, last week as you know, just finished telling Timothy there's a kind of war, a war in the church and a war with, with outside, outside of the church. And so here's the first thing he says in the church, make sure you're praying, praying for all kinds of people, those above you, those beside you, those who are against you. Pray for all people as we looked at last week. And now he continues in verse 8 and says this, I desire that in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works, with self-control. Here's the outline for how we'll spend our time together this morning. We'll talk about men. We'll talk about women. We'll talk about order. And we'll talk about the gospel. And so we'll begin our journey together by looking at verse 8, a text that is written, First, Paul turns and looks at the men. Paul is writing here about the priorities in worship. When the church gathered... Paul says in verse 8, I desire. And the first thing that comes to mind is, well, when Paul says, I desire, why should we listen to Paul? After all, isn't this just his own personal desire? He says, I desire. Well, Paul is an apostle, which means that Paul was called by the resurrected Jesus, sent by the resurrected Jesus with the authority of Jesus. Jesus. So you don't really get the ability as a Christian to say, I'm going to take what Jesus says, but not what Paul says, because Jesus sent Paul. You can't say, Jesus, I want to listen to you by not listening to those who you told me to listen to. That's a kind of kid logic that you grow out of as you get a little bit older. So, and I want to be clear here, I'm not Paul, so you can disagree with me. But make sure that your position is in line with God's word. So Paul says, I desire. And that word desire there is is not just like, here's what I think. Rather, that word desire is sort of stronger than a preference. It's more like a command. It's Paul saying, Timothy, as you're helping to build the church, here's what I expect to see. Here's what I want. This is what should happen. Not just here. In Ephesus, not just in the church you're building, but in every place, in every church, this is what I expect to see. Not just in some churches, in every church. I expect to see that men pray. Now, does Paul think here that only men should pray? Certainly not. His point is not that only men should pray. He's talking about how how they should pray. And he says that they should lifting holy hands. Does Paul here think that when men gather together in the church, that they are every time they pray to lift their hands? No, that's to miss the point as well. Paul's point is the attitude of men in prayer. And so Paul says to the men, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm correcting, and here's what I expect to see. I expect to see that when the men gather together, when the church gathers and men are praying, that men are praying, lifting their hands without anger and without quarreling. His point is that men are more likely than women to harbor anger and division and frustration against others without dealing with it. They're more likely to be aggressive, Paul says, That you are to practice faith, men, this is for you, faith without fighting. And don't you dare think that you can walk into church on Sunday morning fighting with your neighbor, being angry with those around you, feeling justified in your self-righteousness, and that you can just pray to God and God will receive that prayer as though there's nothing else going on. For a long time, God has spoken this way. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 and 17, God says, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, God says, I won't listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself." Make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says, you know, you pray to me, but it's like you think I don't care about what's going on in your heart and your anger issues and the way that's impacting those around you. I don't want to see my church just have men in it who are just like, I'm here on Sunday, big argument with their wives, big argument with their friendships, maybe arguments with other people in the church, and I'm just going to pretend that doesn't exist, I'm just going to pray to God, expecting that God's going to be like, thank you for that prayer. No, Paul says, you must do it without anger or quarreling. You cannot quarrel with others and expect that God will just listen to your prayers. So men... Deal with your anger. Purify yourselves before you pray. Men, especially men, have a tendency to anger more easily. It is true that men and women both struggle with anger. That's been shown. But men tend to express it more aggressively and are less likely to deal with it. And so Paul says, pray, but but deal with your anger and division first. This isn't new. This is precisely what Jesus taught. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching on anger. If you're reading the Bible plan with us, you read this just a couple of days ago. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and and then go. First, leave your offering. Then go, be reconciled to your brother first, and then come and offer your gift, he says. The reality is, for many of us, we love to be right. We love to vindicate ourselves. We love to win arguments in our heads. I bet you you're really good at winning arguments in your own heads against others. But Paul sees and understands and tells Timothy when you're helping to build this church, you need to understand, Timothy, that angry men who are passionate about being right, that can actually threaten worship and Christian community. It will threaten the very congregation that God is trying to build. So men, and I'm speaking to those of you who are men here who are wrestling with anger and quarreling and frustration... Deal with your anger. Confess it. Make peace with those who you are angry with. Seek help and do it now. Paul then turns to the women. He says to the women verses 9 and 10, Likewise, and there the likewise builds on his desire, his command, his instruction. Likewise, what does he expect to see? He expects to see that women would adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul turns his eyes away from the men for a moment and to the women. And to the women, he says, the way you dress should reflect the state of your heart. Not with, he says here, kind of, fancy hairstyles and with gold and riches. If Paul understands that men are more likely to struggle with anger, he sees women as being more likely to struggle with vanity. And so Paul looks at the church and he says that a few angry men and a few glamour-obsessed women can set a bad tone for the people of God. Paul is not saying that only men get angry and that only women struggle with vanity. That's not his point. But he sees that men and women can both negatively impact the church in different ways. He isn't saying that women shouldn't be fashionable. Don't mishear him. He is calling the women to prioritize their godliness over glamour. If the men are called to faith Without fighting, the women are called to godliness without glamour. He tells the women, be concerned with good deeds, not with your hairstyle and your outfit. Like, Paul's point is that we can become so obsessed. Some of the women can become obsessed with what they look like and what they're wearing, what they're wearing to church. And Paul's like, if you're going to show up to church, if you got up this morning and you got dressed, I hope, I think Paul would say, women, I hope you were more concerned with the godliness and the good works that you were going to bring into this space than your outfit. Make that your priority, he says. Because what you want others to see in you is Christ, not to ignore Christ For your outfit. So there's this difference between sort of looking beautiful externally and doing beautifully as Christ calls us to. Now if you think that the text here is about how much money you can spend on a new outfit, you've totally missed the point. The point is not to get legalistic about the number of pearls or about how much an outfit can cost. It's to make sure that we are prioritizing the right things. You don't have to look right to do right. Sometimes there can be a temptation. I can't go and do that. I don't have enough time to get ready. What do we mean by getting ready? I've got to make sure I look right. That's the number one priority. Paul says, no, doing right is more important than looking right. May we be a church that serves so well that sometimes our ladies show up and they have not had a time to do all of their makeup because they have prioritized godliness over glamour. So when the church gathers, Paul says, I want the men, faith without fighting, the women, godliness without glamour. And then Paul presses Timothy on the importance of women learning and the way things should be ordered. This is my third point, ordered. In verse 11... Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The first thing Paul says, he's continuing his thought. and He says, here's what I want, Timothy. Let the women learn. That's the first thing he says. They must be allowed to learn. Timothy, as you're building the church, make sure the women can learn. Now, this might seem like an obvious point, but there are still places where verse 11 is more controversial than verse 12. There are places in this world where verse 11 is more controversial than verse 12. You may know this already. The youngest Nobel Prize, Peace Prize winner, is Malala. Malala is a Pakistani young girl. And when she was just a teenager, when the Taliban took over in Pakistan and expelled all of the girls from being able to learn, she wrote that the girls should be allowed to learn just like the boys. And when she was on a bus one day, In 2012, a man stepped onto that bus and said, who is Malala? They pointed to her, and they shot her in the head. She survived that. And in 2014, she became the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner. Why? Because she believed that it was important to declare that girls have the right to learn as much as boys. So Paul says 2,000 years ago, right, let a woman learn. Make sure the women are able to learn just like the men. Women have a right to learn like them. And make sure they can do it quietly. Now, quietly doesn't mean they can't talk. It doesn't mean shut up. It doesn't mean the women are not to speak. No, Paul writes elsewhere, obviously, that of course women can talk. But Paul is saying when the women are to learn, make sure they're able to learn with a a demeanor of quietness, with a posture of learning in an undistracted setting. Make sure that the women are able to learn, just like the men, in quietness, without distraction, with all submissiveness. And by submissiveness here, this is a very scary word, even though in the Bible, submission is always seen as a good thing. In our culture, it's a bad thing. Paul is not saying here that women are to submit to all the men. Just to be very clear, Paul is saying, Timothy, make sure that when you get the church together, the women are able to learn like the men, make sure they're able to do it it quietly in their disposition and without distraction in submissiveness, not to the men, but to the word of God and to God himself. That is who they are to submit to. It's about Paul saying to Timothy, let the women learn. Make sure they're able to do that undistracted. This is Paul's priority. Let the women learn. And then Paul excuses women from direct responsibility of two things. In verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Here Paul says, let, a woman, let the women learn They they don't need to be, they should not be, I don't want them to be responsible for the teaching or the exercising of spiritual authority in this gathered church that you are developing. That's what Paul cares about. Instead, Paul will say that the spiritual oversight and the teaching responsibility, that will lie in you, Timothy, and in those who you will delegate that responsibility to, and I'll give you the qualifications for them next week. Or next, next, that we'll talk about next week, but it's the next verses, Paul will say to Timothy. Those responsibilities, teaching and oversight, that is for you and the overseers, Paul will say. But Timothy, let the women learn. Don't have them responsible for the teaching and the spiritual oversight. Now, does Paul think that women can't teach or shouldn't teach? No. When Paul writes a letter to the church in Colossi, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, to the whole church, he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So, so Paul says, Everyone is to be teaching each other, Paul says, Colossians 3.16. In addition to that, in Titus 3, which Paul writes, Paul says, the older women are to teach the younger women. So Paul sees women teaching there in Titus 2. And then also in Acts chapter 18, a great story, a young fiery teacher named Apollos is preaching. And as he's preaching, his doctrine is a little bit out of order. And so it says in Acts 18 verse 26 that Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team, they take Apollos aside and they they explain to him the way of God more accurately. So does Paul see women who are correcting the doctrine of Apollos? Yeah, he sees it with Priscilla and Aquila. Does he see women teaching? Of course he sees everybody teaching. Does he see women teaching women? Of course he does. So does Paul think women can't teach? No. He says that in the church there are different roles, and that though men and women are equal, and though both are made in the image of God, they have different roles in the church and in the home. Here he's focused on the church. Now this verse and these sets of verses are controversial, but they weren't really controversial until the 1960s, and they haven't really been controversial in most of Christian history or in most of Christian tradition, but it's hard for us today. I recognize in teaching this text that it's hard for us today to look at that and go, that's great, and that's for a couple of reasons. First, this text has practical applications. So every church has to make a decision about how they're going to obey this text. How do we obey this? And those decisions have consequences. And I want to challenge us here because I want you to kind of see that that when you're you're helping to build the church, you have to make decisions. And, and, And there are two kinds of problems, and they're both problems that people have to face. The first one is nobody should want to permit what God forbids. Right? If God says, don't do this, none of us want to go, ah, we got a better idea. We'll do it. None of us want to do that. And some of us are really afraid of doing that, and rightfully so. But the opposite is also true. We don't want to say no to what God says yes to. That's just as big of a problem, amen? And so you have to see this. You have to see that like, it's a problem to say, no, 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 you can't do that, even though God says Yes. That's an issue, but it's also an issue to say yes to what God says no to. And so the reason this is controversial in part is because it has real practical application for what we do. We actually have to decide what to do, and one of those two postures is not more holy than the other. Secondly, this is tricky because it challenges our cultural sensibilities, Some of us think that this is ancient, and we go back and we go, oh, the Bible, it's an old book, and therefore it must be bad. We're so evolved now. We we know so much more now. Is that really true? Do we look out in our world today and say, they've got it right? I don't. But but it's common for us to practice what C.S. Lewis called a chronological snobbery. We must be better because that's old, and old is bad. But also, it's hard for us because we have seen its abusives, and because it has been abused, it's easy, I think, to just be dismissive of it. The reality is, there are too many examples of men who have been entrusted with leadership who have abused and oppressed women with that leadership. And so our culture has decided this can't be good news, this can't be beautiful, but that's our culture. I want to remind you that not every culture has this problem. Australian New Testament scholar Claire Smith talks about teaching on this text, and she's teaching to a college-aged girl who's a new Christian who comes out of a non-white ethnic-based church. And this young, new Christian girl from an ethnic-based church, um, Claire Smith asked her, like, what do you think of 1 Timothy 2? And the young woman said, uh, when asked if she found it difficult, the young woman said, no, I mean, it's easy. Paul's saying women shouldn't teach in church because that's the way God wants it. And Claire Smith says it would be easy to suppose, well, I mean, she only thinks that because of her ethnic, cultural background, which probably makes it easier for her for her to come to that conclusion. But then, Claire Smith writes, but can you see that the opposite might also be true? That our culture influences our reading of the text, and that many of the difficulties we find in it might exist because of our cultural and our personalities, and not because of the text itself. The reality is, if God is God of all cultures and all history and all nation and all languages, every culture is going to do some things that God's going to look at and go, yes, you've got that right, and every culture is going to make some decisions that God's going to say, ah, nope, that's not correct, and God's going to do that universally. Now, if you only have a God who is just the God of Los Angeles people in 2023, Then your God is going to be very unique, very different compared to the God of of, of all of the world. But we believe God is the God of all. Amen? So we can, we got to to avoid practicing a kind of cultural superiority, declaring to every other culture, you've gotten it wrong, we got it right. We live in LA, we make the movies. So some can dismiss this text too quickly. Others can apply it too quickly. Our job is to understand it. So can women teach and should they teach? Yes. Can women preach and should they preach? Yes. But when the church is gathered for worship, the responsibility for the church's teaching and for its, 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 uh, its uh, uh, spiritual authority lies in the hands of qualified men. Not all men, qualified men. Which is why as we as a church have only men as elders in the church. We'll talk more about that next week. But Paul says, let the women learn. Let them do it undistracted in submission to God's word without the responsibility of teaching or having spiritual responsibility for the church. That's for qualified men. And Paul grounds his reasoning in creation. This is so important. Not in culture. In creation. Verse 13, he he tells the Genesis story. This fall, we're going to do a series going back to the garden because so much of what happens in the New Testament points back to the garden. Paul does the same thing here. Not culture, creation. Verse 13. Paul says, why? Why am I saying this is the way it should be? Adam was formed first. That's a fact. And then Eve. That's a fact. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul's just telling what happens in the garden. He's saying Adam was made and then Eve was made. And then Eve is deceived by the serpent, and then they both eat, they both sin, they both fall. But who's to blame in the garden? When everybody falls, who takes the blame? And the answer is, Adam does. If you read the Old Testament story, after this moment, who does God hold responsible? Adam. Why? Because Adam was responsible for his wife, and he failed in his task and responsibility. God could have made for Adam just like a bunch of dogs to be his friend and his helper. But he didn't do that. He, he could have made just another group of men. God could have designed man so that he was able to reproduce in and of himself. But he couldn't do that. God gave a task for Adam that Adam couldn't fulfill apart from Eve. And so Adam and Eve come together as these beautiful, equal partners. But with different roles and responsibilities, Adam is responsible for protecting and providing for his wife. And he fails in that task. She is Deceived by the serpent, she then deceives Adam. And who's blamed? Adam. Adam is blamed. Before the fall, Adam was given the... This is important. Before the fall, before sin, Adam was given the responsibility to lead and protect his wife, and he failed. And the serpent undermines God's order. And so Paul looks at the garden, and Paul says, this division of labor... And responsibility, it matters. In the Bible, when God creates, God creates Adam first and then Eve. God creates a kind of hierarchy that also has equality. In the world, you get equality but no hierarchy. And in the most abusive and the worst cases, on the other side, you get hierarchy with no equality. In the Bible, you get both hierarchy and equality. You get the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, the the brothers and the sisters in the church. You get them dancing together, but with the men leading. And that ordering is how God creates things. And subverting that ordering is a key ingredient for the mess we all find ourselves in today. And so if, if you read this text. And you go wow. I think. I just don't think Paul thinks highly enough of women. Hold on. Because watch what he closes with next. In verse 15. The gospel. The most difficult verse, Paul says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Paul continues through this theme of Genesis. What happens in the garden? Well, they fall, and then what happens when they fall? There's this curse and a promise. And what is the promise? God says to the serpent that its offspring, evil, will be destroyed by the woman's offspring. And so Paul points to the role of childbearing and salvation. Now, Paul may be seeing here the importance of maintaining sexual distinctiveness in roles, right? It might might be Paul in part having in mind here, hey, women, it's important that you remain as women, embracing the gift of being a woman. But I think Paul is not just pointing to the beauty of embracing the feminine gift. After all, men cannot... Nurture life in the womb. Men cannot give birth. Men cannot produce. We can't make life in our own bodies. This is a big deal. And so Paul sees through this story and has in mind the birth of Christ. She will be saved through the bearing of the child. In Greek, the word childbearing can also be saved through the childbearing or the bearing of the child. She will be saved through the burial of God, which means that even if certain roles are not open to women in the church, we must never forget what all of us owe women. In 1 Timothy 2, just a few verses earlier, Paul says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The one mediator is himself was born of a woman. And without that woman's child, there would be no salvation for anybody. Has any greater honor ever been given to any person than the calling of Mary, the mother of God? She is the God bearer, the only person to have God in the flesh in her womb. How amazing is that? And how much does that honor women everywhere? God comes through a woman to redeem mankind. That is the gospel. That even though there was a fall, God God does not abandon, turn his back on woman and the feminine. Rather, God says, through that I'm going to save the world. God, who is just and loving, comes to show us who we really are. Comes to show us that we are not innocent. Comes to show us that we do not love him or love our neighbors as we are supposed to. That we need forgiveness. God, who is just, says, you are guilty of not being or doing what I have commanded you to do and be. But God, who is also love, chooses to pay your penalty. That's why Jesus dies. Jesus dies so that anybody, any angry man who is not at peace with his neighbor, any vain woman who's been more concerned with how she appears to others than to God, any man who's failed to be a good husband or a good father or a good brother or a good friend, any woman who's failed to be a good wife or a good mother or a good sister or a good daughter or a good friend, any person in this room who has been in rebellion to God's good ways might have forgiveness by receiving God's gift by faith. That's the gospel. It never gets old. We are saved through faith, through the child that came of the woman. Brothers and sisters, this text is challenging for our culture today. But this text in action in the church and in the home is beautiful. Our world doesn't believe that. But it's our hope that as we embody it, we will show them that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. We confess our inadequacy, and we confess your greatness. We confess that your ways are not like our ways. We confess that we do not always understand or apply your word rightly. So we ask for your correction. Give us the courage to speak confidently about the beauty of your creation, your design, and your order. And at the same time, give us enough humility to, to listen to those who wrestle with these things or think maybe we have got it wrong. May we operate in a spirit of Christian charity. So, Lord, give us conviction and give us humility. I pray for the men who are harboring anger in their hearts even this day. Would you give them eyes to see the broken relationships in their lives and the courage to know that they must deal with those broken relationships? before they come to you in prayer, pretending that all is well. I pray for the women in this room who are tempted to think more of how they look than what they do and and how they hold a godly posture and the good works you've called them to do. Lord, I pray that you would deliver some women in our church from clinging too tightly to what they look like and to hold more quickly to who you've made them and called them to be. And Lord, I pray that as we as a church seek to follow your word faithfully, you'd give us wisdom, you'd help us to keep things ordered, and you'd help us to point in our actions to the beauty of your design of the way that you made things. Lord, we recognize our need for your spirit, our need for you. For all of us have rebelled against you and all of us need salvation by you. And we thank you that through that woman, Mary, you sent Christ to be our Savior. Hallelujah. I pray that we would embrace him more fully today. We would thank you with a greater heart today. And I pray that those who do not know you would see the beauty of Christ for them for the first time. It's in your name we pray.